Do we have any trumpeteers in our congregation this morning? Did anyone play the trumpet? Anyone? Okay, there's a couple. So you know it's, it's not as easy as people think it is. There's definitely a technique to it. So we've come up in our uh, story or journey with Joshua the way in up, in up until this, the most famous of all stories involving Joshua, though there are many, this one stands apart. Most people, whether they are churchgoers, Christians or not, have heard of the walls of Jericho that came a-tumbling down. And this story has so much to teach us. Even though it's so familiar to us, there are so many angles and aspects that I believe it's worth diving into again this morning that God has some new truth and maybe some old ones to remind us of this morning. So would you bow with me and let's pray together as we enter God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you again that your word is timeless. From beginning to end, Alpha and Omega, your word will stand, for you are the author, and you stand from beginning to end. And so, Lord, we thank you that as we enter a story that's very familiar to us, that you have a word to speak to us this morning. You have truth to impart, encouragement to give, challenges to give, and may we receive it. We thank you, Father, that this is the work of your Holy Spirit, and we pray that we would have receptive hearts. So speak through me, your servant, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the biggest reasons this story stands apart from any other in the book of Joshua is that this is one of those quintessential stories of God giving an improbable solution to an impossible problem. I know that's a bit of a mouthful, but God giving an improbable solution, or in some ways, an impossible solution to an impossible problem. You see, although God had promised to give Israel the promised land many times over, here this mighty walled city of Jericho, inhabited, remember, by its giant warriors, who earlier when the spies had spied out the land, they said of the inhabitants of that place, they are like giants, the sons of Anak are there, and we are like grasshoppers in comparison. So those people had not gone anywhere. These giant warriors are still inhabiting this land and this city, and so here it stands in their way. And unless they find a way to bring down those walls to take that city, it would always stand in their way, barring entry into the promised land. Now, when Leanne and I visited Israel, we did get to travel to the ancient city of Jericho. And if Ben can pull up the first slide there for me, I want to give you a bit of a feel for where it's located. Now, the, the perspective of this, of this photo is from the south looking north. And so you're sort of hovering above the Dead Sea. Imagine you're floating on the Dead Sea right now, which is a real thing, by the way, even if you're not a swimmer. You're floating in the Dead Sea. You're looking north. And in front of you is the Jordan River going up the Jordan Valley all the way to the Sea of Galilee in the north. Now, on the left-hand side, you see a blown-up picture of the city of Jericho, which is on the west side of the Jordan River. So when you're looking north, it's to your left. The children of Israel on the right-hand side, the east side of the Jordan River, they're coming in. You see the camels on that side there. They have to cross the Jordan River, which, which they did with the Ark of the Covenant, and then standing right there as the gateway fortress to the city, to the land of Canaan, is the city of Jericho. Now, on the next slide, you'll see uh, one of the things that has stood the test of time. Here is the spring called the Elisha Fountain, And there's a plaque there above. I don't know if you can read it. It says, Jericho, the oldest city of the world. 
Now, that's one of their claims, is that this is the oldest uh, city that's been founded and still lived into this very day. Now, the city of Damascus also lays claim to the same thing, so they can fight it out at some point. But nonetheless, that's what they lay claim to, being the oldest city in the world. And this fountain comes up naturally from the rock within the city, feeding the city with water supply. And so this was very important because during sieges, where you can't leave the city to get water, the water is already within the city walls. Now, another famous story about Jericho you'll see in the next slide And uh, you remember the short little man named Zacchaeus. Well, he climbed up a sycamore tree, and that was in the city of Jericho. And so as we drove through Jericho, this was pointed out as being that sycamore tree that that, uh, Zacchaeus climbed up. Now, sycamore trees don't live to be 2,000 years old, so you got to take that with a bit of a grain of salt. However, that is a sycamore tree located in Jericho. Obviously not the same one, but it gives a good visual of what the tree was like that Zacchaeus climbed up to see the Lord. Now, in this next slide, this is the only view that we got of the actual ancient city of Jericho. Now, it looks just like a hill in the background, but that hill is actually called the Tal Es Sultan. Now, a Tal is a built-up area where a city was located where when one city is destroyed by invaders, they just fill in the rubble and then build on top. And then they fill in the rubble and they build on top. And so it's called a tell. And so it just keeps going up and up over the centuries. And so that hill back there is actually the tell where the ancient city of Jericho was located upon. And so it gives you an idea of here is this this built-up city, this fortress with the vantage point of height. And so here we see it would have been a mighty imposing thing to imagine that that entire hill is encircled by mighty stone or brick walls and and towers on top. And so this gives us an idea of the location. Now the next picture is uh, an artist rendering of superimposing what the ancient city of Jericho would have looked like upon that tell in a modern day setting. So this is a picture of the modern time with the ancient city superimposed on top to give us some perspective of what the ancient city would have looked like. So now, as we look at this, we ask the question, what did Jericho represent to Joshua and Israel? What did they see when they looked at Jericho? Well, they will have seen three things as they came up to the walls of Jericho. First, they will have seen a city of pagan unbelief. Here is a city that has rejected the true God of heaven. They are into all sorts of idolatry all sorts of pagan practices. The second thing they will have seen was a city of human impossibility. Because humanly speaking, taking this mighty fortress would have seemed utterly impossible. And thirdly, they will have seen it as a city of strategic importance. Now, all three of these things are crucial. Pagan idolatry in the first place had to be confronted head on. The corrupt Canaanite religions with its sexual immorality, complete with child sacrifice, sounds familiar at all today. The same thing is happening in our culture. And here we see that this is happening in ancient times. They are practicing sexual rituals. The children that are being conceived to temple prostitutes are most often burnt upon the altars to their false gods. And so here we see that God confronts this head on saying that these pagan practices cannot coexist with the pure worship of the true God. 
that we cannot commingle with these people. They need to be confronted head on and destroyed. Quite simply, Jericho's cup of iniquity. Their grievances, their mighty sins had built up century upon century upon century, and now that cup of iniquity was full, and God's judgment was coming against this city and its inhabitants. Now, we must grasp as we look through this story, we must grasp that to understand the why God ordered the wholesale slaughter of all living inhabitants within this city, both young and old. We see this throughout the Canaanite conquest. It's, it's tough verses to read when you say that they killed old and young. But we must understand that in eradicating everyone, it was the same as when God eradicated all living things on earth in the great flood of Noah. The entire earth's cup of iniquity had filled up to such a point that God said, it grieves my heart that I've even made man, I will send a flood to wipe them out. In doing so, God was just. And in the same way, in eradicating the wicked inhabitants of Canaan and Jericho, God was just. The people were receiving the full measure of what they deserved for their many sins. However, we also must take note that in the same way that God provided a safe haven for the righteous during the great flood within the ark, so too God provided a safe haven for the righteous within Jericho. Where was that safe haven? It was upon the very city walls that would come a-tumbling down, in Rahab's house. For we see that Rahab's faith in God, protecting the spies, the, the promise was given, everyone who comes within the walls of your house will be spared. Not just Rahab, but everyone who believed Rahab's word and would come under the protection of her house. And so even as we see God's judgment and wrath poured out on a wicked city, we also see God's mercy in providing a place of safety for anyone who would enter into it. Now, secondly, when we look at this city as a city of strategic importance, Jericho is located near the Jordan River, as we saw in the earlier picture. It was the Canaanites' gateway fortress to the land. And so any invading army would have to deal with this great walled city. There was simply no bypassing it and saying, well, we'll deal with it later. It was simply too strong to be ignored or bypassed. It had to be completely defeated or the Israelites would never be safe, and if they bypassed it, it would always be prone to an attack from behind. And so this city simply had to be taken. Now in this next slide is one that we saw in last week's sermon. This is an artist's rendition rendition of what the ancient city looked like. And over the last century, archaeologists have conducted many excavations and research on the ruins of ancient Jericho. As they dug, they discovered that the city Joshua saw actually had two walls, an inner wall and an outer wall, both built on the slope, making it virtually impregnable to any enemy attack. They also discovered that Jericho had indeed been destroyed by fire in approximately 1400 BC, fitting both the correct time period and the biblical description in the book of Joshua. One of the archaeologists named Bryant Wood describes the famous walls of Jericho. The mound or tell of Jericho was surrounded by a great earthen rampart or embankment with a stone retaining wall at its base. The retaining wall itself was some 12 to 15 feet high, On top of that was mud brick wall, six feet thick and about 20 to 26 feet high. 
At the crest of the embankment was a similar mud brick wall whose base was roughly 46 feet above the ground level outside the retaining wall. This is what loomed high above the Israelites as they marched around the city each day for seven days. Humanly speaking, it was impossible for the Israelites to penetrate this impregnable bastion of Jericho. Other things that the archaeologists found was that the city had indeed been burned with fire. They also found, burnt amongst the the wreckage, um, stone pottery that was still filled with grain, indicating that Jericho was indeed prepared for a long siege. They had grain in plenty in their storehouses, and it was still there within those pots when they found it. Also fitting the description that the Israelites were barred from taking anything from the city that God did not sanction. And so here's a a mighty people who need grain to feed their people, and yet the grain is left untouched. Another indicator of the accuracy of God's word as we read this story. And so this brings us now to the third aspect of Joshua's view of Jericho, and that is the one of human impossibility. Joshua 6 verse 1 sets the scene. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Now imagine this is like one of those movies you've seen, whether the Lord of the Rings or something like it, where this mighty fortress is prepared for battle, all the draw gates or bridges are brought up, the gates are barred and shut, extra watch is set on the walls, and everyone is armed, prepared for battle. On the outside is Israel, but remember, though they are numerous in people, they are not in warfare. They have no siege engines, they have no catapults or battering rams. Militarily attacking this city head-on would have been suicidal for Joshua and his men. And even if by sheer numbers they managed to somehow overcome the walls, the casualties would have been catastrophic. The only alternative to a frontal assault on the city would have been a lengthy siege. A siege where they cut off all routes of escape from the city in an attempt to starve the city into submission. But Jericho, as we've already said, was completely prepared for war and a lengthy siege. They had just taken in a large harvest, plus having that natural spring supplying water from within its city gates. Starving the city into surrender would have taken many, many months, if not years, to achieve. And so we see that it was totally, absolutely, completely, and utterly impossible for Israel to bring down those walls. A smart man would have come up against a fortress like that, taken one look and said, there's no way, and then walked away. Yet inexplicably, unexplainably, in the span of just one week, one week, seven days, Israel took that mighty city without one single casualty. But how? Well, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 30 tells us how. In very few words, this is what it says. By faith. By faith is how the city was taken. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith. But what does that even mean? What does those two words, by faith, really signify? I mean, what sort of faith was required by Joshua and Israel to cause mighty walls to come tumbling down? Well, let me give you four answers to that question. What kind of faith was required? Number one, it was the kind of faith 
that followed God's plan, which defied all human logic and reason. So it's the kind of faith that follows God's plan even when it defies all human logic and reason. Okay, now I know that's a mouthful, but think about this. If God tells you to do something that logically makes zero sense to you, in fact, it goes in the face of your common sense, logic and reason, what's your first instinct? Let's take Peter, for instance, standing in the boat, watching Jesus walk on the water. His mind, his rational mind, is trying to compute around something that is utterly absurd, impossible, against all logic and reason. Jesus is walking on the water. But somewhere in his mind, he says, Lord, if you can do that, then tell me to come do the same. And Jesus says, Peter, come. And in this moment, Peter's rational mind is wrestling with his faith. Do I step out of the boat, do something that's impossible, or not? And so by faith, Peter walked on the water. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. It's a faith that goes against all human logic and reason. In Joshua 6, verses 2 to 5, the commander of the Lord's army, none other than the pre-incarnate Christ, had given Joshua this extremely strange battle plan, none of which seemed to have any military value. Basically, the plan was this. March around in circles a bunch of time, blow trumpets, and as you go, finally give out a mighty shout, go really loud, and the city is yours for the taking. Now, honestly, this sounds less like a military strategy and more of my toddler strategy of getting her way. Does anyone have toddlers who use this strategy, the marching around in circles and then shouting really loud? Anyone, anyone else in the back? Okay, okay, a few of you. So toddlers know this strategy, but when it comes to military things, this isn't going to work, is it? What are the chances that this would work against a city like Jericho? Now, all you've got is a whole lot of noise, followed by the mocking laughter from the people of Jericho when it doesn't do anything. So what we've got, humanly speaking would fall into the category of the greatest military blunders of all time that we might see on the History Channel. And yet, after hearing the Lord's strange battle plan, we read in verses 6 to 7 that Joshua, without so much as a word of protest, saying, well, Lord, maybe we should tweak the battle plan just a little bit. None of that. He moves forward to obey. We read in verse 6. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, Advance, march around the city, with an armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. And so here we see Joshua had the faith to follow a plan that defied all human logic and reason. Now what about us? What about our faith? Do we have that kind of a faith? to follow God's plan even when it flies in the face, the face of our human thinking, of what appears to be sound or right thinking even. At times, God will, will call us to do something that defies all of our natural thinking and natural logic. Do we have the faith to, like Joshua, not argue, but to say, yes, Lord, I will obey? Secondly, we see it was a faith to see God's victory before it happened. Faith to see God's victory before it happens. This is what God said to Joshua before he gave him the plan in verse 2. The Lord said, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king 
and it's fighting man. Now, I want you to take note of the past tense in the Lord's word. He says, see, I have delivered. Not I will deliver. Here we see that before it's happened, God is speaking of Jericho as having already been delivered into Joshua's hand. This is a key point. Don't miss this. God is saying to Joshua, before the victory has taken place, it's a done deal. God can speak, listen to this, God can speak with more certainty of the future than we can of the past. God can speak of future events with the same certainty that we can say, yep, I was born on September 25th, 1982. God can speak in exactly the same way with more certainty of future events. See, I have given you the city. I have delivered it into your hands. And yet there it stands, still bristling with soldiers. God is promising Joshua to deliver the city as a done deal. But now Joshua, he has to hear the word of the Lord, and yet with his eyes he sees the reality of this fortress still standing before him. Which one will he believe? What he sees with his eyes or what he hears from the Lord? And so here, don't miss this, Joshua needed to see it spiritually by faith before he would see it physically with his eyes. So when we come up against an obstacle and the Lord says, I am giving you the victory, in fact, it's already in your hand, we have to spiritually, with faith, see what God has done, even when our physical eyes see the opposite. And when we believe it by faith, then God will achieve that victory so we will see it with our own eyes. Hebrews 11 verse 1 describes it the best. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Joshua had to look at Jericho being certain of victory even when his own eyes did not see it. It saw the opposite. And it's the same for us today. Today we live in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. It could happen at any day, at any hour. The trumpet could sound and the Lord Jesus will descend. Jesus has told us that he will return. He has given us signs to watch for, to know when it's coming close. And today those signs are appearing with ever-increasing frequency. Now, of course, we haven't yet physically seen him, have we? But are we acting as though we will see him? Are you and I living, are we living in such a way that we have this certainty that we will see him? It's not an if, it's just a matter of when. Are we living out Christ's gospel mission with that sort of urgency that the vision of his imminent return should instill within us? Do you envision your friend or family receiving salvation before it's happened? Do you dream of that day? Think of that day. What will it be like if that child, if that brother, if that aunt or uncle or that friend, what will it be like the day that they give their lives to Christ? Do you envision that? Do you envision revival and salvation spreading through our town of Killarney, even while with our physical eyes we may see many hearts acting hard towards the Lord? But do we envision revival springing up in our time, in our town? If not, my prayer is that our faith will increase to see God's victory before it happens. There was a day when Robert Morrison, the first Protestant missionary to China, 
He was on a passenger ship to that pagan nation for the very first time. And on one of the days of the voyage, the captain of that ship, hearing of Robert Morrison's mission, asked him a rather disparaging, mocking question. What do you think you're going to do? Convert China? No, came Robert's quiet reply. I don't think I'll ever convert China. I think God will. That was some centuries ago, and today there are more Christians in the nation of China than have even the ability to be counted. They are in the tens of millions. This is the same sort of faith that brought down the walls of Jericho, to see God's victory before it's happened. Now, thirdly, we come to this third aspect of Joshua's faith. It's a faith that expressed itself in persevering obedience. Now, why did God have the people march around the city for six days? Why not just once? Why six days? And then on the seventh day, seven times. It's not as if their marching around the city somehow destabilized the stone walls. So why? Well, it is, I think, a lesson about the power of God on one hand and the need for perseverance on our part on the other. You see, God has so ordered the moral universe that he responds to our faith when it is actually put to work. God responds to our faith when it is put into action. It's not passive faith that he honors, but active faith, living faith, faith with shoe leather, faith that marches around city walls, faith that does something. One of my personal definitions of faith is this. To act as though what God has said is true. That's that's my personal definition of faith based on Hebrews 11.1. To act as though what God has said is true. God had told them repeatedly, I will give you the land, I will give you Jericho. So how would they act? Would they act as though God was telling the truth or as though God was telling a lie? Their actions would dictate their true belief. If they were somehow suspicious that God was actually going to follow through, they would have hedged their bets. They would have been cautious. They probably would have disobeyed in some way. But Joshua doesn't do that, does he? He acts in accordance with his conviction and belief that what God had told him was true. Think of other examples in Scripture. Noah had to act Long before the flood came, 120 years before, in fact, is how long it took him to build that ark. Peter had to get out of the boat before he knew whether he would walk on water or drown. Joshua had to march around the city, not once, not twice, not three times, but 13 times before the walls came down. Each of these required faith to act in obedience as though what God had told them was true. And they had to do so before they saw the answer. The Israelites marched around the walls once a day for six days. Now imagine the scene. Just try to picture it in your mind's eye. Tens of thousands of soldiers lined up the first day to march around the city. In front are the priests with the Ark of the Covenant. And they march around blowing their ram's horns, much better than I did, mind you. They go around, they're they're blowing their ram's horns as they go. The people of Jericho on that first day are braced for an attack. Everyone is armed. Everyone is amped up. The adrenaline is flowing. Here it comes. 
But nothing happens. Israel marches back to their camp and spends the night. That's a head-scratcher for the people of Jericho. What's going on here? It's also a bit of a head-scratcher for Israel. What was that? The next day, they march around again, and again, nothing happens. On the third day, they march around again, and again, nothing happens. And on this day, I suspect the people inside of Jericho are starting to relax. It's some kind of crazy joke. It's like in the VeggieTales video, wandering around in the desert. Perhaps you're dehydrated. Right? They've, they've gone a little loony in their thinking. They must be nuts. The sun has fried their brains. This is just a waste of time. And probably Israel, by this point, there's people murmuring within the ranks saying, what are we accomplishing here? Why don't we just attack and get this over with already? But then the fourth day comes. They march around again. Again, nothing happens. This time, probably some garbage flies over the wall. The people of Jericho are shouting more insults at the people of God. On the fifth day, the same thing. On the sixth day, the same thing. It's getting really tedious now, people. Six days and nothing. And then the seventh day arrives. The circumference of Jericho was approximately a kilometer around. And so having to march a total of seven trips around this city in full battle formation, it would have been a grind. They've got whatever armor they have on. They've got whatever weapons they have in their hands. Seven kilometers around. They're probably a little further out than that. So add up the distance, the terrain, the hot sun. It's a sweaty, long, tiring day after you've been marching for a whole week. Extreme perseverance was required to keep going, even while nothing was happening. J. Hudson Taylor another man of dynamic faith whose missionary efforts helped open China to the gospel after the aforementioned missionary, he came after him. And time and again, he saw God do amazing things in the face of hopeless circumstances. Reflecting on his own experience, he remarked that there are often three stages that he saw in doing any great task or undertaking for the Lord. Three things that he always encountered and spoken with others that they encountered as well. These three stages are simple. It's first impossible, then it's difficult, and then suddenly it's done. Impossible, difficult, and done. When Joshua saw Jericho, it looked impossible. Then marching around and around was difficult. But then suddenly, just like that, it was done. Here's one thing I've learned. Whenever you start to do anything for the Lord, it won't be as easy as you hope for. And it won't happen as fast as you'd like. But when you learn to persevere, just putting one dusty foot in front of the other day after day, suddenly you'll look up and realize, it's done. God did it. I didn't even see it while I was just marching around, but God did it, and it's done. All that was required was that you persevered in obedience to what he called you to do. And in the end, God will reward you for it. There's a story that in ancient times, a king had a giant boulder placed on the king's highway as a test of his subjects. And so, having it placed there, he then hid himself and watched to see if any of his subjects would remove this huge rock from the king's highway. 
Then he saw as some of his wealthiest merchants and most powerful officials came by the huge boulder on the middle of the road and simply walked around it. As he listened, he could hear many of them loudly blaming the king for not keeping his road clear. But none of them did anything about getting this boulder out of the way. Then a peasant came along, carrying a load of vegetables. On approaching the boulder, the peasant then laid down his burden, and he tried to move that huge stone to the side of the road. And finally, after much pushing and straining, hours of labor, he succeeded in leveraging that giant boulder off of the road and clearing the king's highway. Then, as the peasant went to pick up his load of vegetables and resume his journey, much delayed now, he noticed that there was a bag lying on the roadway right underneath where that boulder had been sitting. And opening up the purse, the peasant discovered to his shock that inside was a small fortune in gold coins, along with a note from the king stating that this gold was a reward for the person who would remove this boulder from the king's highway. And so too, when we face an obstacle, no matter how great or small, if we but persevere in faithfully doing the work that God has called us to do, one day, not only will the work be done, but we will find that behind that completion is a tremendous reward from God that is out of this world. For Joshua, that reward came on the seventh day. After the seventh trip around the city, when the seven priests blew their seven chauffeurs, seven, of course, being the number of completion. This is God's stamp of completion on this event. And in verse 16, Joshua commanded the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you this city. And then the walls came a-tumbling down. What a scene. What a moment. Even the most faithful who believed, yes, God could do it, but would he? As they feel the rumble, they see the shaking, and suddenly they see those walls imploding downward on their footprint, the soldiers going down, being buried and killed with it. What a shout, what a moment, as then it says the people rushed up into the city. Remember, it's going up. They go up into the city, and they take it in a single day without taking a single casualty. Verse 20, when the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the walls collapsed, and everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. And that is how Joshua and Israel conquered Jericho by faith. First it was impossible, then difficult, and finally it was done. And so here is the faith that took a city. The faith to follow God's plan when it defied all human logic and reason. The faith to see God's victory before it's happened. The faith that expresses itself in persevering obedience. And finally, the faith that is rewarded for doing what God has asked you to do. One of Ira Sankey's most famous hymns goes like this. Faith is the victory. Faith is the victory. Oh, glorious victory that overcomes the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that by faith we would see what you see. That the victory has already been achieved through Jesus Christ. It is secure in Christ. 
And so, Lord, as we come up against our obstacles, our challenges, as we pray for those who have not yet come to salvation, help us to see what you see. Help us to believe for it. And then to work with persevering obedience towards that end, knowing that one day it will be done. You will be glorified. People will come to salvation. And in the end, you will give us a reward that is out of this world. And so, Father, today I pray for a persevering spirit that would persevere by faith in what you have called us to do. No matter what the obstacles before us, help us to be like Joshua. Amen.